Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Warrior You Podcast with your host, Bram Connolly. Join Bram as he uncovers what is to be a modern-day warrior on and off the battlefield, covering such topics as human performance, emotional intelligence, resilience, mental toughness, epigenetics, neuroplasticity, philosophy, and much, much more. Warrior You, it's the performance advantage. And don't forget to check out Mentors for Military Podcast. Yo, yo, hey dudes. So joining me on today's show is Sean O'Gorman. He was a police officer from 1989 until he walked away from the job in 2002. He left the force with depression and PTSD and for three days sat in a darkened room with a pistol thinking the only way out was to end himself. Well, he's gone on to create an incredible resource, the Strong Life Project. He draws on and highlights his own experiences to help people confront their demons and move on to lead emotionally connected lives. So grab a coffee, settle back, and enjoy. So my background um, worked in Queensland Police from 1989 to 2001, 2002, predominantly in the docks world, like canine unit. So it's a high res- well, response to a lot of violence, a lot of real uh, frontline policing, so first response unit, and left the cops in 2002 with depression, PTSD, and battled suicide badly. So I lay for three nights in a row with a Glock in my hand and going to end my life at that point and didn't because – and I battled it for, for a number of – probably a couple of years then and then for many years after. And the reason I got to that point, man, is I loved the job that I did so much. I joined the cops to be – to help people and make a difference. And I loved it so much that I just – I would go and work my days off. I was uh, – at 22, I joined the dog squad, had a gun, dog and car at home had no supervisors, so I was literally living my dream and wanted to do it since I was six. And then I'm in a situation where they tried to slow me down on many occasions, the bosses of the police, but I didn't listen, and I I literally burnt myself out from just working too hard. So I would often go to six, eight, ten violent incidents in one one eight-hour shift. I'd do heaps of unpaid overtime. I'd go to work my days off. I would do all of the like there was a, there's a million stories that just shows how it's a little bit like loose in that respect. But because I loved it so much, I'm a very all-in personality. Some is good, more is better. So I loved it so much at that point that and having grown up, I went through divorce and then my mum and dad got divorced, different things. So the police was very much where I felt at home. So I figured if I did more and more and more of it, I'd be a lot um, happier. At the same time, I was very much in that alpha male culture that's probably similar to the military, 
where it was work hard, play hard. I had a, a group of probably a dozen mates around me that myself and another guy were very much the king of the kids and the ringleaders of As I look back in my 20s, we were drinking hard. I'd work 10 days straight, drink for three or four pretty hard, and then back to work. So, what, Sean, Sean, what is it that someone like you loves about the idea of joining the police force? Is it good guys and bad guys? Is it, you yeah. know, is it is it that yin yang of the world? Is it that you that you were always going to do that? A driving, or is it is there something out there that just drives people like you and me to to seek those professions out that is mysterious and? Bloody, you, yeah. know, you know, universal that we can't even put our finger on. You know, what is it? Mate, my simple brand. My dad was a cop, so and my uncle was a cop, but my dad was in the police for forty-two years. He is very well known in the police, and was president of the police union. At one point, was second most decorated cop in Australia for bravery, and that's not something he talks about. Like he's a very humble guy in that respect. He's he's very much a the conversation you and I had a few days ago. He's very much about oh look, I did my bit, but plenty of people did a lot more. The thing for me was I saw what Dad did, and to me it had meaning. And I worship my man. He was my hero for sure when I was a kid, and I still I love him to death. But a job that had meaning and a job that not everybody could do and a challenge in a job that I see most people would run away from. Mm. My ex-wife used to say to me often, she said, I don't get you because you run towards the danger that other people run away from, and it makes no sense. Now, I was at my happiest when I was going a 1,000 miles an hour, lights and sirens to a job where someone had a fire on because mm. – and it was a personal challenge, mate, and part of it people say is an adrenaline addiction. Look, I'm sure that's part of it, but I think it's actually the – that probably romanticises it somewhat, but I think a big part of it is that I just love to help people and make a difference. That's why I do what I do with The Strong Life now, and there is certainly that aspect of challenge in yourself to go, well, the fear and – for me, in the covers, when, when I'm driving flat out to a job, there's an there's a there's a fear, but that's when I felt my most comfortable. It was quite bizarre. Outside of the police, in my own life, I, you know, wasn't didn't make great decisions, and you know, I was pretty destructive in a lot of ways. When I was at work and going a thousand miles an hour to a job that was really dangerous, that's where I was at my most effective, because now I realised I was acting out of instinct or intuition. My brain didn't have time to get in the way and, and, and then fuck everything up, then it was just that absolute belief in we're doing some good. I'm doing something that really contributes to society, as, yeah. as uh, cliche as that sounds. Yeah. So what 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 was the end result? Sitting there, Mate, sitting, there wanted, sitting there wanting to take your own life, what was? Yeah, just yeah. woke up. Um, there's a whole very long story I won't bore you with, but it's uh, – I went to a job where an outlaw motorcycle gang member stabbed another one 14 times. We found him in the middle of a bush in a caravan with a dog. He comes out with a carving knife and a uh, machete. We have words where I suggest the best for him to surrender. He says to me, if I come out, you're going to put the dog on me? And I said, yep. I said, but if you don't, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. And had a drop holster, drew my glock, pointed his head. He dove into the dirt, obviously thinking I was a bit more loose than him. Went back from that job, he kicked out the windows of the police car, ended up in a fight with him, choked him unconscious. And then I put a – I get him under control, handcuff him, and, and um, here it was already handcuffed, sorry, but uh, hog time. And there was a couple other police there at that point with me, and there was a young policeman I took 
with me back in the car and to the station to get another car because theirs was a crime scene. I go home that night, wake up four in the morning crying and shaking, realise I'm having some sort of nervous breakdown at the time I didn't, I didn't understand. Then go to the doctor. That day, diagnosed Michelangelo fever. I went there to get a sick certificate so I could go and get on the, on the drink with some of the boys. Then drink for 12 hours, break my best mate's nose in a fight, wake up in the morning, go to the doctor, give me three weeks off, realise I can't go back. So short the usual police stuff. Not pretty much, you know, usual, uh, you know, alpha males together, ego. And, but I just realised I couldn't go back to it because, and I put it in a sentence, a mate of mine said to me when I was on stress leave, he said, look, you're the epitome of the cop's cop. If you leave, we all, cha- you know, we'll challenge us to go, what are we doing? You can't go. Explain to me in one sentence why you have to go. And I said, well, the personal cost of me doing what I do for the benefit that I can give to other people, the personal cost is now too high. So I left and spent 16 years doing my own personal development. I didn't get medically unfit. I didn't retire. I didn't take a, a pension or any money. I just left out of pride. It was a mistake. I certainly should have. And then I, I really dealt with that injury for the next, well, that's 16 years ago now, for the ne- next X amount of years, probably 10 or 12 on my own, doing a lot of alternative medicine treatment, you know, working with, um, I listened to one of your podcasts with a the young woman who's the kinesiologist, studied kinesiology and all sorts of stuff for for years, and that's how I sort of evolved, stumbling into doing what I do now, coaching people in in human behaviour and critical stress and PTSD and performance and yeah, that so whole, that kinesiology that kinesiology is is well worth exploring, and she she was a great person to talk to, um, Stacey. I think that with regards to all those different therapies and the like you know kinesiology right up there but sort of nothing nothing sort of beats sitting down talking to a psychologist psychiatrist psychologist and uh, you know clinical and 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 understanding you know some of that behavior and what it means and working through it yeah definitely mate i've got a uh, a, you know i talk to a lot of police now and actually a a few soldiers lately and i work with one guy who i've been coaching for a couple of years, and he's very happy for me to talk about. It. And we've had this discussion. Damien Brown's his name. He's a infantryman. In, in I can't remember how long he's done. Four or five years in, in military. Went to Afghanistan, but he's a UFC fighter. And when he came to me, he'd been done the psychs and psychologists and all those things. And I think they're brilliant. And I think for people who are in that critical stage of injury, psychologists and psychiatrists are unbeatable. Mm. Because it's a chemical imbalance. At that point of your life, it's a literal chemical imbalance in your brain between serotonin and dopamine and the lack of production of those chemicals. What I feel is it gets to a point where that, you know, if I use um, my partner's trained as a physio but does a lot of high-end human behaviour and performance coaching for like NBA athletes and swimmers, Olympic swimmers. And if I put it in that analogy, if you snap your Achilles as an athlete, you'll go and see a surgeon and get reattached and you go to a physio and you do your rehab and you'll get back to where you're fully functioning. But then at some point, if you want to go back to a high-level operating athlete, then you need to go and start working with whatever coaches and mentors there are in your specific discipline to get very well-versed and, and cure the imbalances in your body with strength and conditioning coaches, be it a like I do CrossFit, I know you do CrossFit, a CrossFit coach, whoever it might be. And to me, the psychologist, psychiatrist is in the critical clinical phase, when you get to a point where you're coping with it, 
then to me it's about switching gears into that personal development phase, which I'm in now and will be in for the rest of my life because it actually gives you that pathway and that leapfrog to continually improve and I feel as though there's no glass ceiling to where that ends. So it's better off talking to a police officer about the – if you're a police officer, it's better off probably talking to someone who has the same language as you, has similar experiences to you, understands you to help you work through things that you've already perhaps overcome, but now you need some of that constant rehabilitation and guidance and the like. Mate, yeah, I think that's a phase, Bream. I think it's fine. Look, I've worked with um, – like I said, like kinesiologists, the, the woman that I worked with who taught me kinesiology, and I use it for myself and I use it for um, coaching in, in certain circumstances, she was very much what I would call a hippie. She, she had no idea about cops, mm. but she had a she knew human behaviour. I've, I've worked with mentors who are business people or different people. I think you definitely need to have somebody who you trust to know what you're doing, and often that is someone, if you're a soldier, it's, potentially a soldier, if you're a cop, it's a cop. If you're an alpha male, it may well be another alpha male or it might be an alpha female. Who knows? You've just got to find the people that resonate with you who allow you to do it because it's all personal. I can't help Brent Connolly do anything. I can't help you do Jack unless you're willing to do it. Mm. So there's got to be a trust and a level of inspiration in the person you're working with that you go, I want what they've got. And that may well be because, like, for me, I know when I work with police what I get from them all the time is I love talking to you because I know I'm, I've got a guy in Canada I'm helping out at the moment and he said to me, you know, I love talking to you, man, because you get it. You've been a cop, you've done the thing. He said, you just didn't learn about this in the book. So I think that's where the like-minded police military thing comes from. Yeah. But, and, but a lot of that's alpha male ego too, I think, that we like to talk to other guys who are like us, which is... It's almost like having... I mean, it's just—it's not just guys. I mean, there's there's plenty of you know I know plenty of you know females who were in in the military that went to Afghanistan that did and saw things that shook them up. And they have PTSD from it. So um, oh, absolutely, mate. Absolutely. And and I think that there's an extension of cognitive behaviour therapy, which is yeah. what you're which is what you're talking about. You know, you're you're doing. And in fact, I was talking to a couple of lecturers yesterday from the University of Western Australia, and at the moment, I'm delving into resilience quite a lot and. They, I mean, that's coming up in a, in a future podcast. These people are at the top of their game. And, you know, one of the things that, that they said is that uh, we were talking directly about IED strikes, hitting an IED. And, you know, it's probably similar. A similar sort of thing with the police would be just being shot at, I guess. Or, yeah, sure. You know, yeah. interestingly, one of the ways to overcome the PTSD from those things is to be immersed back into that situation slowly. Yeah. So that, you know, maybe 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 the first thing you do is go and have a look at an IED, a component component of an IED. Sure. Then you might yeah. go and then the next time you might watch a small blast. Then you yeah. might then you might see what that small blast does to something. And then you might see a bigger blast and then you might see <laughs> then you might see a bushmaster, you know, videos of a bushmaster hit by an IED, you yeah. know, and then and then you might go through some some of that therapy of like, look, Sure, you were there. You were in that vehicle. You were either injured or you weren't injured. But here's all the here's all here's the steps that happened to get you to that point. Here's what happened after that point. Here's here's what happens when you when you get you know Kazavact, and it's not going to happen again. And because Absolutely. part of part of PTSD, which is really interesting for me, true PTSD, 
where you're not functioning, you yes. know, because of a traumatic experience that was, you know, life-threatening. Part of the problem, and this will be interesting to some of the listeners, is there's certain genetic profiles which makes you hyper alert to things. Mm. Great when you're in a war zone. Yeah. Able to acquire targets quickly, rapidly fire at them, rapidly make decisions, don't go down that path, do go down that path, this, that, the other. Yeah. If, if that genetic profile isn't switched off when you come home or when you go off duty, absolutely. then you're walking through the street going, that's a threat, that's a threat, that's a threat, that's a threat, and you're on yeah. overdrive and it, and the cortisol spikes are going on and on and on and on and your, your pituitary gland is is off the charts and you have you now have a, a PTSD. And mate, that's what I think the majority of policing PTSD is. And all of that stuff you talk about I love. I've been down a lot of the rabbit holes of that you know, neuro, neuroscience and all sorts of things, in, especially in the last 12 months. And what I, what I realise now, the whole – and I, I've, I listened to a couple of pod, podcasts with Reese Dowden, Dowden, I think. It was yeah, it? good dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds like a great guy. And and you mentioned uh, with the young woman on the kinesiolo- kinesiology one whose name I forget. Stacey. Um, Ruth. Yeah, cool. She, so with her, when you said about PTSD and you were very um, very strong on your, you know, I think 90% of it's bullshit, blah, 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 and I agree. And the thing that I can do. I'm, I'm slowly, I'm, I've got to say, I am slowly changing this position and not not because it's not because it's popular, but because I'm starting to understand more about myself and the things that yes. I would right and the things that I would think would be PTSD worthy. Perhaps my genetic profile and my childhood and my 20 years in the military of being inoculated in some ways to it is different than the four year infantry private, you know, or the. Or someone, yeah. or you know, or someone else who's like, shit, this is overwhelming. And you remember, I went to Somalia in nineteen ninety three. I was seventeen. That's your brain is still forming, you know. Oh, yeah. And I had yeah. the adventure of a lifetime. I talked to some Somalia veterans, and they are screwed up from it. Absolutely. And and I have no right to say what does and what doesn't, because there's things that happened there that would have been to a thirty year old with kids. A lot yeah. more, yeah, a lot more sort of intrusive on their brain space than yeah. 17-year-old, sorry, 19 at the time, 19-year-old Bram cruising around going, this is awesome. I might I might get to shoot at someone or they might get to shoot at me and, you know, and not looking at the human factor. I was so stupid and naive. And oh, na- yeah. naivety is protection. Absolutely. And the thing, and that's what I was going to like clarify, obviously, if you're the same as you, I, I don't. The, the 90% of it's bullshit, I don't agree with that terminology, but the reason I said it is because I want to lead into saying I I would love the term post-traumatic stress disorder shits me to tears because two reasons. One, it defines a, an impact of somebody who is rear-ended in a, in a motor vehicle accident all the way through can be sexual abuse, can be domestic violence, can be right all the way through to a police officer or a combat veteran that are in um, a soldier who are in significant, see significant violence. And to me, it's just such a broad, wide ranging gambit of situations. It's number one, it's very easy for people to identify with it. And it, it obviously, like, it, it, there's no doubt to me it exists and it exists in much larger numbers in society than we believe. 
But the problem is to me, PTSD as a diagnosis and as a label for a lot of people allows them to then not, and we talked briefly about this the other day, to then not get the help they need to live a better life and get through it. Man, it's like a, it's like ADHD with, with kids. Absolutely. You know, we just, we, just, we just throw that out there onto every kid and some kids are just kids. Mate, I, yeah, I look back now and... Jesus, my bloody youngest is hard work, you know, but he doesn't yeah. have idea. Yeah. Mate, if I was, born in, I was born in 1970, if I was born in 1990 or the year 2000, I'd be diagnosed with ADD for sure. But to me it's the... When we label people with certain things, we disempower them from then taking responsibility and control of something. When it's PTSD, and I work with a lot of police with it, and um, there's some guy, someone like me, who I took it as a, then another challenge to go, oh, I'm going to beat this, no way it's going to define me. But there are some guys who, as you say, different genetic profile, different personality type, who go, well, you know, there's a particular guy I know who's, who's actually a military veteran, um, I want to identify, and to me, I was talking to him a couple of years ago, he's 43, and he said, he goes, oh, well, I'm, I'm retired, I can't work again. I said, mate, you're 43? Like, no, I've got, P- I've got PTSD. I said, mate, that, that doesn't stop it. I said, I get it's hard and I get you in a shit place now. But I look back to some, like the Vietnam veterans, my old man, I had a lot to do with them as a police officer, and um, he applied to go to Vietnam. He didn't get picked on conscription, but applied to go and... and but medically couldn't go. There was some story, say, and he was in the police at the time, or he wasn't allowed to go because he was a cop. There was some story anyway. And when I look at a lot of those guys, there's some of those guys were impacted really badly and, and struggled and suicide and struggled to survive. Some of those guys, it didn't affect at all. And that's the difference between, as you say, I think it's a genetic profile. It's background. 19-year-old Sean, similar 19-year-old Bram, just didn't give a rat's ass. I had no consequence of... Uh, no understanding of consequence at 28 or 30 when I'm, you know, I'd seen a fair bit of violence and seen a lot of stuff, then I was starting to think, well, Jesus, this is actually sort of building up a bit, I guess. And that, all of that stuff to me then leads down the path of, of all I want to see is that people understand that there's nothing in their life that defines them that they can't change. Yeah, I love that. Don't, don't let one day in, in, in your life define you forever. Exactly. I think that was the post on Instagram that I did maybe three years ago. Don't let one day in your life um, define you for the rest of your life. That had the most, you know. And I'm not. A, I'm not a like groupie, but it had the most people. Yeah. That had the most people go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and in similar to your post the other day, um, which was brilliant on LinkedIn, which is how we met. Which was, you know, it's none of my business what anyone else thinks of me. Yeah. What other people think of me is none of my business. Absolutely. You know, listening to you talk, I can't help but feel like the police force has some of the same issues that the military has with regards to people wearing armour, and I don't mean body armour. So you're wearing a uniform, that's your armour, you know. You're wearing that for 10, 20 years and you're, you're, you've got a persona, you've built a personality, you've built a brand. Your sense-making of the world comes from from being that person. Then you leave leave a high-performing team such as a police force, you know, especially if you're in any of the tactical units or dog squad or, or you know, any of the really – any of the units that work out in amongst it every day. Same, mm. with, same with the military, you know. You leave, you, you know, you leave infantry, you leave special forces or you leave any of those sort of, you know, not just arms units but primarily those high-performing teams and then 
and then the next thing you know, you have a separation anxiety disorder, you're depressed, you tell people you're depressed, you might have done six, eight tours of Afghanistan, but you don't have PTSD per se, but they'll exactly. tell you you do. And, yes. and you know, you're just, you're just a bloody perfectionist who's been in a high-performing team and now you're bloody upset. I get that. And it's not, you're not, people shouldn't be too proud to go, Jesus, I need to reinvent myself. I have no idea what I'm going to be next. Got it. Well, let's help those people when they leave the force or they leave the police force, they leave the ambulance service, leave the fire brigade. We should be helping those people to rediscover themselves. Definitely. Mm. And, and that that's very much about, to me, the PTSD thing. That's why I'd love it to be called something else or, you know, whatever. Well, you know, Dan Pronk talks a lot. And, I mean, it's not Dan Pronk. Pronk didn't didn't coin this the whole post traumatic growth. It is a it is a it is a study, a resilient study. But I think he's onto something. You know where, I mean, just that narrative after we've had a violent confrontation, you know, the focus shouldn't be oh poor you. The focus no. should be hey man, you did what you had to do to nullify the threat. Good work. Let's teach other people to do what you've done because you saved your life. Who cares about the ship? The, who cares about the ship bag that you had to bloody that person made that person or those people made that decision to pick up that weapon or to do that thing. Mate, and that's a, this. I just did January to about May, forty-five or June, forty-five two-hour critical stress presentation at Queensland Police. It was amazing, mate, and I was actually surprised that they did it. And the head of their welfare, the head of their they call people capability command, their welfare and and well-being sort of area was a champion of it. He was someone I knew when I was in the police, and. Through that, what I realised, mate, talking to probably 1,200-plus police, was the incidents often are not the things that impact them. So the actual violent incidents. So, like, I was in a, in a vehicle pursuit where a guy, two guys, two druggies fired X amount of shots at us in, in a pursuit, and I ended up having to chase them on foot down a pedestrian mall in Brunswick Street here, and they both shot themselves in front of us. And the, the pursuit, the leading vehicle that was in front of me in the pursuit had 24 rounds in it. That was a pretty serious sort of contact with these two idiots. Yeah. That rattled me, but I went back after a 12-hour, you know, homicide investigation and walkthroughs and I walked into the dog squad office mid-morning and my boss, and I was always in the shit, so I'm not surprised to his reaction. I walked in the office and he said to me, where have you been? I said, I was at that shooting. And he said, what shooting? And I'm expecting some sort of ticket tape parade like I'm a returning hero, you know, and he says, uh, mate, I don't know what you're talking about. And... And he said, but it doesn't matter where you've been. He said, who authorised your overtime? Now, I've just been in this massive chase. These guys have shot themselves. They shot at us and blah, blah. That was the part that caused me more stress mm. than the incident mm. because it was, it was the lack of emotional awareness and that, that human connection, I guess, to, under, to, to even him just go, oh, mate, are you okay? Mm. That, in hindsight, probably did the damage in, in, in the sense of that just made me more pissed off and more angry. Mm. And when I left, like, as I said, my dad was in the job. I wanted to do it from the time I was like, born. That the loss of identity, the loss of makeshift, that loss of connection caused me the most grief. It wasn't the, the incidents and those things, I believe, depending again on your personality, as you said, some people, I talk about the hypervigilance and that with, with police. I talk about relatability and I talk about some people are just more susceptible it's like cancer or diabetes you and touch what I hope this isn't the case but you may have a predisposition to prostate cancer because that gene 
is in, in the Connolly family. My belief, the O'Gorman family, and there's about a million of us, my dad's got 14 brothers and sisters, a good Irish Catholic family, there is a predisposition to depression and some mental health stuff. So you go, if that's in your background or in your nature or if you've got relatives that are like that, if it's cancer, you get checked more often. If it's diabetes, you watch your diet and you check your blood sugars. If it's some mental injury or mental trauma, then you're just more aware of it. It's just a common sense thing for me. Instead of it being something that defines people, and then when I left the police, I was really embarrassed because I felt I left as a coward because I couldn't handle it. Nah. Now, I go back into the coppers, and I was really, really challenged to go back. And I went back and did a talk to certain, so search for SWAT team, for mm-hmm. so special weapons team, the dog squad, and the, our riot squad. And they were the guys that I very much hung out with. You know, that's where I was. Mm. And I went back there to deliver the the workshop I do, and I was really challenged and nervous to go back there. Mm. When I got back there, I was welcome with open arms. It was amazing. And what it really helped me do was I was still connected to that identity because the boys that were there that, that are my age, who are now there, a lot of the TC, the tactical commanders there and the team leaders there, they were like, oh, yeah, there was a particular job. I was at home on a day off watching the news, saw this siege, got in the car, went lights and sirens all the way across Brisbane. A bloke was firing shots out of the house. Nobody called me out. I just called myself out, got there, and the boss. Is that a thing? It, not for anyone that else. Sounds like something out of the other guys. <laughs> but it is. And, and my old man was like, that's why I grew up with that. So I just thought that was normal. That was yeah. normal. Yeah. And again, mate, I just loved it so much. Yeah. I never thought of the consequence. My my idea was I'm watch, I watched the news. I saw a guy off the rifle firing shots out of the house. I go, I've got to get to that job. And, and you've, you've got a dog, right? Yeah. And that yeah. dog's... Ready to go. He's and I did a lot of work with the, the, the special yeah. weapons team. Yeah. Didn't do their selection course or any of their training, and I want to be really clear about that. Did a lot of work with them, and I went on most of the jobs. Me and another guy back in that they've got their own dogs now, but I, yeah. it was just the two of us. And uh, I get there, this, the boss says, "You know what are you doing? Who called you out?" And I go, "Oh, I did." And he said, "You're an idiot. Fucking go home." So I drove around the corner, put my vest on, got the dog out, went through backyards and went in the inner cordon and stayed there for 13 hours and ended up taking old mate out. Now, that's such a, a ridiculous response and irresponsible and all those other things. But it was that level of my commitment to what I did that I didn't give a shit about any of the other stuff. Or, and this is interesting, mate, or you were very progressive because actually in the UK and America, the response to terrorism and the response to active shooters is actually exactly that now it's it's highly mobile self-appointed you know area experts who come on and off duty as they require and respond yeah. to things uh, i won't go into the full details of it but it's but australia is a long way behind well maybe they're not anymore i mean i've been away for a few years but yeah they could learn a thing or two from that from from your experiences there and your you know, putting yourself on duty. Uh, I suppose yeah. the framework for it isn't set up to pay a guy just because he wants to work. No. And a dog. And, and, How do you pay a dog anyway? Yeah, that's right. Just make pats. So they're, they're just happy to pat them, so it was good. The thing, and this is, we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole, but I think it's it's a good one. This may challenge some of your listeners, but I'd say probably, probably not most of yours, if I'm correct, who they are. I still very firmly believe that I look at the concealed carry laws for the states, mm. and I believe if you're an ex, ex-military or ex-law enforcement, 
who have been weapons trained and qualify and whatever, mm. if you or I wanted to to conceal carry off duty, then mm. I think that should be a thing for exactly that type of reason. Mm. And that because a whole lot of that identity stuff that I'm, yeah, someone cut someone cut me off yesterday though, mate, and I would have and I would have ended that dude. Exactly. And that's exactly you know who you are. That's where it comes. Yeah. You know, there, there was a, there's an argument that went around at one point about police taking their firearms home here. Yeah, yeah. And they said, well, they can't, as, and it was around terrorism level threats and mm. um, threat levels and different things. And they said, well, no, we can't have police taking their guns home. What if they do something stupid? And and different to, to military. And I'm like, well, for eight or ten hours a day, they're driving around police cars with the, the guns on their head. What's the difference? Mm. But the whole identity and the whole ability for me, no longer as a career or whatever else, I was, I was sitting here and um, I'm very close to, the CBD, I can see the CBD at the window in, in Brisbane, at Kangaroo Point. I was lying in bed here the other night and I woke up to some rifle shots. It was probably probably 12 or 13 rifle shots. And you, you, the concussion noise of a rifle shot, obviously, very different to a car backfire, as you and I know. And it was this boom, 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 boom. And I thought, Jesus. And I sat up in bed and my, and my initial, I was pulling my tracksuit pants on, put a jumper on. And I pulled my shoes on. My initial response was, fuck, I'm gonna, I better go out see what's going on. And I stopped for a second and thought, well, what am I going to do? I've got my my six and my three-cell maglite beside my bed in, in case of intruders. And I'm like, well, what do, what do I do now? And I got to the – and I literally got to the door. And I've been out of the police 16 years, mate. I got to the door and you could still – there was a couple of shots still being fired. And I was like, fuck, this is out of control. And I had a blue and white striped jumper on and these grey pants. And I'm thinking, well, this is the last get-up I want to be walking out in the dark if someone's actually got a rifle. And and I thought to myself, if I actually go out and try to do something, I'll potentially become a, a victim or a target and cause more trouble in, for responding police or whoever. Now, nobody turned up. I didn't ring. I was about to ring triple O and I thought, I'm just going to sit for, you know, that'll happen in about 12 seconds, I reckon, if that and then I sat for a while, sat for probably 10 minutes, and then I heard it a distance away again. And I went, right, so obviously they're mobile in a vehicle. Then I went out and looked around where I live, and there was no, like, obviously no one injured. There was no one running around. The, the thing was over. The next morning I spoke to the woman who manages the apartment building, and she said, oh, yeah, someone saw a black Jeep driving around. It was backfiring. So it was state of origin night. Good chance these idiots are just out with blanks in a, in a, with a rifle firing blanks of the car, I would, I would presume. Now, my initial response after 16 years was still I wanted to get up and get out and get in it. Like I was so fired up. Mm. And that is the part that we lose when you leave. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com the police or military or any of those services, you lose that ability to tick that box for our personality. Mm. And part of how I do that now is CrossFit, even though it's was totally different. But to get that point where you're pushing yourself really hard and you're in pain and you've got a little bit of camaraderie, yeah, got it. I find that really good. But you're not able to – what you're saying is you've had that kinetic response taken away from you unless Correct. you put yourself in a lot of risk. Yeah, I mean, you're not in your Pat Malone there with someone who'll get up at night and, and go investigate. I might, you know, I'd be a little bit sneakier. But um, yeah, well, that's yeah, that's right. And the thing is, mate, I like, 
often when I talk about this sort of stuff on podcasts or my stuff, I think you must sound like an absolute dickhead. But the reason that I talk about these things is these are the they're the things that guys like you and I don't talk about. No, I don't think. I, I mean, no one's going to say that. And the thing the thing is, like I, I talk to I mean, my kids are they're not that scared of the dark anymore. And yeah. and you know, I, I said to my sons, you know, I was scared of the dark when I was a kid when I was really little. We used to have kids, you know, driving their cars. Kids, these are kids in their teens and twenties, driving their yeah. cars and do you know cars and doing burnouts up and down the street and all that sort of stuff. And you know, back when I was in Adelaide in the eighties, mostly late seventies and eighties, there was there was a lot of abductions, and there was you know, yeah. and and you're exposed to that stuff through the TV. You hear you hear about you know, like Richard Kelvin's son from memory was taken out of the window of his house or whatever, yeah. and and things like that. He was a, a news presenter's son, and you know, I remember that stuff rattles you. But I've said to my kids, look, I've been the scariest thing in the dark. Yeah, like I know what that is. I know what you know. I know who the boogeyman is. You know, he's a mate of mine. We used to work with him. We used to blow doors in. You know, and yeah. I try and explain to the kids. You know, there there is evil out there, but the evil that's out there is different than what we think it is. You know, and and most of the stuff that we hear in Australia is, it's generally, unfortunately, you know, domestic stuff. Yes. And yeah. and and organised crime, and they're not going to worry about the likes of you and me and any of that other <laughs> any of that other state sponsored stuff. We just all get over ourselves for a little bit, please. Yeah. You know, like. Jesus, let's leave it where it is, and and let's let's solve things through, you know, whatever peaceful means, and, you know, whatever. But you're not your you're not on your own there when you say that because I have a, a feeling that one of the things that we disregard a lot with kids in their twenties and thirties is an outlet for that chemical, you know, t- testosterone, that shitstorm, you know, Absolutely. and that's that's why you're getting all these punch ons on alcohol, and you know, that's why you see that's why you. You see all this sort of – because there's nothing left to conquer. There's nothing left to explore. There's nothing left to, you know, that that was the outlet at one point for testosterone. And now with the death of, of the masculinity of man, you know, we need to work out another way to to be truly uniquely, you know, male and yes. not and not violent and not, you know, and, and don't tread on people. And, you know, it's a whole new area of development that's required. And, you know, let's navigate it. Yeah, and mate, because I, I think we have this whole, this whole where we've become a very vanilla society, and we've definitely lost the essence of the strong man. And that's one of the things that the Strong Life Project that I do is very much focused on building loving, connected, powerful leaders in men, and letting men get get their balls back in the sense, but not of the tough out like the tough guy alpha. Oh, mate, mate look, exactly, mate. My great grandfather grew up in the bloody depression, and he would have been a prick. He's his son, yeah. my grandfather, never talked to my dad. My dad struggled that with that his whole life and was yeah. really quiet and did not know how to show any affection. I am a, I am different than that, but I'm not perfect. My kids will be a lot better than me. This is bloody generational, and we need to stop saying all this garbage crap that people are saying about masculinity and just understand, hey, we're working on it, but this stuff doesn't happen instantaneously. Mate, and it's, it's actually given men, and there's a whole lot of this stuff, right, and this is, this is what I love. It's dispelling the old boys don't cry myth and go men cry, men are emotional, men have impact. I'm a very emotional person. And when you come back to the whole PTSD thing, I go, well, it makes sense. Like I'm very emotional. My dad's a very emotional guy, one of the bravest men I've ever met, but very emotional. You know, I look at me with my daughters who I love to death. Like I'm very, I'm hugs and kiss. I love you girls, you know, very. 
emotionally open and connected with them, with my friends. Like I'm with someone now, and many, many years of work to be comfortable, where when I meet mates of mine I'm close to, I, I hug them. I don't shake their hand with some six-foot six standoff because they'll think I'm gay if I try to hug them, you know, like mm. because it's about us being strong enough and masculine enough to go you can be loving and connected and still have the ability to enact violence to protect the people you love if you have to. Yeah. It's this, It's the whole thing I want. I want to build this generation of men for the next, you know, there's a couple of guys who I do some work with. Lockie Stewart's a young guy that I do every week on Facebook Live, sort of Q&A thing we've been doing for the last four or five weeks with a really good response. He's 27, really emotionally connected guy, ex, um, played a couple of seasons of NRL in France for rugby league. Mm. Tough, tough dude, great athlete, lovely guy, so connected. And then I look at the generation of my, my daughters are 13 and 10, the boys are, that have now, you know, birth to 12, 13, 15, if men like you and I have got the courage to stand up and be loving and connected, but we still have to have a consequence for the men in their 20s and 30s who are lunatics like I was. But the reason I was, I had the police outlet, but also the reason that I didn't, you know, that I, you know, I wouldn't be violent to women because that's just not who I am. Yes. But, but the reason I wasn't violent for fun, if you like, whether that be to women or outside of the job or whatever, and I'm not suggesting people do it just because it's fun, but the reason that I didn't act out of violence rather than control my emotion and regulate that situation was fear and the fear of consequence because fear and respect live next door to each other. They're they're next door neighbours. And that's when I go, if somebody went to me when I was like, in, I was born in 1970. So when I was 20, it was 1990, joined the police in 1989. If I went out and mouthed off at someone in a pub, a good chance I'd get smacked in the mouth. So there was a consequence. These days, I think we've softened society to a point where most young men are told from the very, from, from the first time they can walk, don't be violent, walk away from fights, stop it, I don't like it, you know, these things, which is great. Yeah. But there still needs to be, as men, we still need to have the masculinity that when somebody strays away from the, the social norm, which happens, there needs to be men who are, who are willing and capable to pull that person back in the line. Oh yeah, you want to raise sheepdogs. Like you need to raise you need to raise people who will you know, and that and that doesn't just come down to throwing your fists around, you know, when you're frustrated. That that is if you if you see an bullying or, or an injustice, you know, and and you know, even even someone saying something to a female that is obviously by by your silence you're supporting that you know i teach i teach my i teach my boys to to speak up you know yeah okay so is the police still a good place for a young guy to go yeah mate i think so definitely you get a lot of people my like i'd have 30 years in the job this year or next year guys my age are like oh tjf is their favorite saying the job stuff that's the the police thing I think police is fantastic. Mm. Policing's a, a very no, and I'm not saying this because you're military. This is, I've said this so many times. Police and military are the two most noble professions on the planet, in my opinion, because men and women who do those jobs go towards a danger other people run away from, but they're there willing to give their life to protect other people. And I don't think there's any more ultimate sacrifice than that. The cops is a great place for young men and women because you get. If you're the person that loves to help people, and that was me, you get that opportunity. What, what's the what's the general? Uh, how does someone go about it? How does someone go? How does a young, you know, girl or guy go about 
getting into the police force these days? What's the process? Mate, these days a lot, like Queensland's gone back to, again, um, they went through the whole, you need a university degree and you need to be highly educated. They're back now to more of a, a more practical sense of they're very much on a push to try and get 50-50 female male and a lot of women who I talk to or police officers vehemently disagree with that. The, the thing for me, if you're a young guy, young girl who wants to get in the police, it's a pretty simple process that but they're selective about who they take. And unfortunately, I think a lot of that is politically motivated and driven depending on the government of the day. There's a lot of stuff. Obviously, we want in our police force to reflect our society, so we want more different cultures and different nationalities, which I think is great, want more women, which is great. But you also need to look at who are the people who are most likely to want to do that role is going to be young men of any of any racial background or, or cultural background probably, but young men. And the only thing that concerns me is I think the recruiting the police does these days reflect society, which is if if a young guy turns up who is like you or me, who's a very obvious alpha male and, and fairly um, overt about it, I'm not sure that's a great tactic for him these days. Yeah. I, think, mate, I still think it's an awesome job. It's just a different job. Would I want to do the job now? No, because yeah. I know what it was like before. And is it like the military where... I mean, I've said this a few time, few times to people who who are thinking of joining, and that is, you should you should join the military, and on your first day, you should be thinking about the day you're going to leave. So you should be setting your life up. It might be twenty years down the track, like it was for me, or it might be six, four, six, ten, whatever. But you should be going in there with some idea of how you're going to get out. Yeah, and see, police don't do that. I joined the police at 19, fully expecting to be there till I was 60, and I never oh, dreamed in a million years. Mm. And that's dangerous mm. because yeah. that was the biggest problem for me when I left is I had no idea what else I was going to do. Mm. I had no identity outside of the uniform. Yeah. And and I think that's why these days, like the states have got a model in many places, like New York, where it's the old 20-year pension, similar to the military. I think that's a great idea. And if a cop wants to stop past, stay past that, great. But if not... You do that for a period of time until you're, say, 40. If you join at 22, you're 40, and then you know that you're going into another phase, so you're preparing for that. Because policing, I think, especially in a first response operational role, isn't something you can do at from 20 to 60, 40 years on the road, jumping fences, chasing people. You just literally will burn out. Yeah. Talk to me about the Strongman Project. Yeah, Strong Life Project. Strong Life Strong Project. Life, um, it's... Mate, Strong Life is an acronym for living with strength, tenacity, resilience, optimism, nurturing, and generosity. Nice. So I see what you those, did there. Yeah. So those six things, mate, is I, – I, I used to say it's all for men, but it's for men or women because it's about having the strength to be the person you want to be regardless of what people think, the tenacity to know that you can always get a solution to any problem, the resilience to be able to get up when you get knocked down, the optimism to know life always improves and you're never stuck in the same place you're in today, even if it's pretty shit. Mm. The nurturing aspect, which is about loving and caring for the people, yourself, number one, and then the people around you, and that goes out in ever-increasing circles in a society. And then the generosity of yourself, your time, who you are to other people. The essence of humanity is, if to me, if we all give, if we all make our priority giving to others, then much of the societal problems we have disappear. And it's a super naive, obviously way to think but to me the strong life having come through yeah a number of different difficulties in my life and mum and dad being divorced when I was young and 
and those sort of things. And then the police monitor on the police and subsequent my marriage breakdown six years ago, my own journey through the mental health and PTSD stuff, dealing now, like I'm in the midst of dealing with some shared parenting challenges with my, my ex-wife, with my two daughters. All of those things I've been through, you know, I had a 15-year corporate career, which I didn't love, but it paid me really well. Yeah. A lot of the things I've learned through all that, Bram, gives me a, a pretty broad range of experience and tools and understandings to really be able to help other people, and that's why I do it. And I work with, I work with police, obviously, but I work with cops. I work with some soldiers. I work with high-end business people. And I recently was mentoring a guy who runs a seven million dollar construction business, for instance. Mm. I'm working with a guy now who's a, a regional sales manager of a team in a particular industry. The the thing about Strong Life for me, mate, I've done 760 odd podcasts, daily podcasts, 10 minutes every day, written some, written a couple of books. That is insane. <laughs> yeah, mate. It's been awesome. Brilliant. But well it's just me, and as your listeners realize from this last hour, I love to talk. It's just me talking into my phone about things that I think are important in my perspective. Mate, if they go to the stronglifeproject.com, there are so many free resources for people on there mm. to get into. Same on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, LinkedIn. If you Google the Strong Life Project or you search the Strong Life or you search Sean O'Gorman. My whole thing, mate, is the Strong Life Project exists because I want to leave the planet a far better place than I found it. And that's something I was immensely challenged to say for many, many years. But these days for me, I'm, I'm getting so much better at not giving a shit what any people, anyone thinks of me because the feedback and the response I get from the people who get the positive impact of the work that I do is humbling and fulfills me in a purpose of helping people and making a difference. So it's more important to me that I come out, like on your, your podcast or in my stuff or other people I talk to and keynotes I do, come out as a very raw, open, honest version of me who is a pretty full-on character but still to this day struggles with my own fears, doubts and insecurities. Yeah. I still very much, you know, question myself as to whether some days I look at, my, look at myself in the mirror and think, mate, are you just in this because you've got a massive freaking ego or do you really want to help people? Like I, the key to life, mate, self-awareness and patience. I think if you have those two things and then you, you're going to be okay but we don't teach kids self-awareness or emotional awareness and we teach people as a society that it's everything's instantaneous gratification and we want it all now. Mm. Yeah, mate, I think it, you know, I, I just followed you on Instagram. That was that noise on my computer. I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's really, you know, noteworthy what you're doing and, and I, I think that you and I will, will converse a lot more between Warrior You and uh, the Strong Life Project, I think there's a, we can touch a lot of people and make a lot of people's lives um, better, you know, more purposeful and better versions of what they were yesterday and then look after people's mental health as well, which is an obvious, you know, is an obvious issue, the whole mental fitness space. Um, and, you, you know, you're uniquely qualified to give your, you know, not only your opinions but your, you know, your foresight into how things work. And I think that if you've, if you've able, if you're able to talk to the right academics and make sure that it's that that it's all underpinned by, you know, structure, then I think you're on yes. to a winning thing. You know, I mean, that's the thing. I've had a lot of people come to me. Uh, I've got thirty or forty cousins, and a couple of them are doctors and psychologists. And Bloody Catholics! Mate, mad. Got to love the Irish Catholics. 
And they said to me, look, you're, what you do is awesome. You should go and do a psychology degree. Mm. And with all humility, I, I think, like, I could absolutely do a psychology degree. I don't disagree with them. Yeah, I do. And I'll tell you why I do. Mm. Because, Brad, the thing for me, like, I have no, no doubt I could go and complete a psychology degree. And it's, I, it interests me. Now, I've been studying for 15 years. Mm. The thing for me is I deliberately don't gain formal qualification for one reason, because there are hundreds of thousands of psychologists in the world who do a brilliant job. My real power and real strength in what I do is a lived experience, and it gives me a point of difference and a different perspective for the people I'm talking to. Mm. Now, the only reason I would do a psychology degree is ego or so that a certain group of society would come to me for advice and help. Right. My belief is that group of society is being extremely well serviced by the amazing professionals in that field already. Yeah. And can I add something different? Probably not. Can I add to it? I'm no one exceptional than anyone else. Probably not. They've got it handled. The group that I see out there are the men like me and I don't know you well enough to say if you were this, would have been this guy, but the men like me and the women like me I know who won't go to those professionals because of the stigma or the fear or whatever, I see my job as being the linkage between those people into those professionals. Yeah, see, my, my ex-wife is a psychologist, so I look at them probably a little bit differently than what you do. <laughs> of course, mate. Of course. Hi there if you're listening. Yeah, I, I think that you're right. Yeah, listening to that, yeah got understood and there's 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 a certain person that'll come to you because you're not a, a psychologist and you know what you've got those resources at on hand anyway and in some cases i find that academics find it really difficult to to talk about some of their really complex ideas in the way that most people are understand them anyway i know yesterday i had to record the conversation with these two doctors because they were just so much smarter than I was. Um, and I had yeah. to go back and listen four or five times to some of their statements to go, oh, yeah, okay, I get that now. Um, and I think there's a real skill in being able to oh, – I hate using the term dumb down, but there's a real skill in making things accessible to the general population of some of those real complex issues. And when it comes to personality disorders and when it comes to – not PTSD so much, but but things along the lines of um, resilience and 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 how that's developed. You know, it's important to have people like you and I who are practitioners. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I get that. Yeah. And all, mate, and I look at it like this: there's the power in me is my story and the the zero to hero version. And what I mean by that is, if if somebody wants to lose weight and they watch a Jenny Craig commercial that has Here's Mary, and she was 150 kilos, and now she's 70. Then the person who's 150 kilos goes, "Shit, I'm going to do what Mary did because that's there's proof." And this stuff for me, that's the gap that I see that's missing at the moment that I'm trying to fill. And many, many other people are, mate. You are. There's a lot of people doing it. Where it's the lived experience stuff of going, "Hey, for me, I was lying in bed in two, 16 years ago with a block at my head, going to shoot myself." Yeah. And I don't say that lightly, and it's something, mate, I, hadn't, I didn't tell anyone for years post the police and how easily it rolls off my tongue now amazes me to now where I'm so happy and I'm living an amazing life. I've got a fantastic relationship with a woman who, who has, teaches me so much and I very much see as my equal, mm. that, and, and, and I should, but that wasn't how I used to think That's 10 important. or 15 or yeah. 20 years ago. 
I've got two beautiful daughters who I love to death and the not having them around as much in the last six months has taught me a shitload about parenting. My next little launch is into writing, I'm writing a book currently about how to be a good divorced dad because there's so much around the emotional awareness and connection and that for men around that that, that nobody really talks about. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Yeah. And, and all of these things, mate, that I've been through, the difficulty and the challenges and, and I was talking to my dad yesterday, I said that about how to be a good divorced dad and the dad's on his third marriage by his assessment wasn't brilliant as a, as a, as a dad. He was just a very typical dad of the 70s and 80s. Made a love dad to death, but he was, a, he was my personality, well, his personality, at work all the time as a cop killing himself loving it. He wasn't around with us much, yeah. but that was that, was that, that attitude. Mm. But when I said it to him, he goes, oh, mate, I think that's brilliant because he said, mate, nobody gives you a book on how to be a dad. Now, there's thousands of books out there on how to be a dad. I've researched and can't find too many on how to handle the emotional impact mm. of divorce mm. on you as a father and how to be the most emotionally resilient and aware and connected so your kids might lose lose their family. It's probably not even the right term, but the kids might lose their family, but they don't lose their mum or dad. Mm. And Yeah, their access, their access is less, but their – you know, the um, quality of the time they spend with you is going to be enhanced if you're doing it the right way. I'm a better dad, divorced, than I was married. Yeah. No doubt about it. Mm. Far better. Mm. And and that's no disrespect to Mike's wife. She's actually – she's a good human being. Her and I are just like oil and water. We don't mix. And I met her when I was 29 in the midst of my lunacy in the police where I didn't care if I got killed on duty. And I ended up being suicidal. So I wasn't in the place to be making decisions about what pizza topping to have, let alone what lifelong partner to have. <laughs> you know, so. Fair enough. To me, mate, it's the whole thing is going, if we can be out there, men like you and I are out there, out of the closet, living our lives with our heart of our sleeve, very open and honest about the insecurities and the things that, that still challenge us day to day, then there are millions of men out there in the world. There are tens of thousands in our old industries, being military and police, and especially in the SF community that you were involved in, that can then understand and look at someone like like you, who you know, has obviously done multiple tours overseas and been in multiple contacts and that been in some very very hairy situations. For me, who you know do my bit in, in the police and and similarly you know was involved in stuff I love, like I love, but was again very challenging. Mm-hmm. And how people like you and I then navigate our lives through to the, the place. What, what are your mid-40s? Yes. What? Yeah. Forty-four. Forty-four. At the time of recording. At the time of recording, that's right. So for men like us that are approach like we are very much approaching that level of our lives where we become the mentors and leaders for the next generation. Yeah, and I've certainly seen that as the person that I've become since leaving the the military and my my message to special forces guys and you remember I don't know half those guys anymore because yeah. the, the 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 turnovers you know fast enough that most of most of the people most of the young guys that are probably listening to this you know in in some way they probably think I'm a dickhead but the the, the, <laughs> the fact of the matter is I don't care what they think I want them to know that you don't have to ask permission to do something once you leave the military that's my biggest bugbear with with what happens when we leave the military after 20 years like I did. We then look either to the universe for lofty ideals of what can I do next and wait for a sign or we or we wait for some non-existent colonel, 
you know, or lieutenant colonel or whoever to go, yes, that's okay. You can go and write that fictitious book or you can go and start that podcast or you can start that nutrition brand or you can open that gym or you can do – but guess what, guys? That person's not going to be there to give you permission. So you've got to give yourself permission while you're still in to make plans. Otherwise, you're going to get out and you're going to be depressed. Who knows? And, mate, and that's absolutely brand. And that's the thing. When you're in a military or paramilitary organization like you and I both operated in, when you leave, even though the thing that I hated the most about the cops was being told what to do, and I fought against it and got myself in a lot of trouble, there was a real sense of peace because I was told what to do. There was a structure. There was a wear this clothing, do this thing, turn up at this time, do this thing. When I left policing, and I've never thought about it until you said that, that lack of direction and discipline and, as you say, somebody telling you what to do. My, my favourite, it was like an Olympic sport for me in the police and my old man used to say, was you know, being told to do one thing and doing the opposite. Now, if we can tell men that are coming out of the military, the very thing that you took out of the out of those jobs and they're not their callings, I, I certainly believe being a copper or a soldier is a, a calling, you go and answer that calling, you do what you do, take the amazing things out of it, but while you're in there, don't sit back and wait for that organisation to educate and mould you. Be on the front foot learning. Like, never give up learning. And I hated school. I, all I wanted to do was get to 18 so I could join the police. I didn't want to be in school. But I've in the last 16 years, I've never stopped learning. And I, and for the next 60 years till I die, I won't. Well, that's what that's what Warrior Use slowly become. It's a it's an online forever you know learning platform. So it's designed for you know it's designed now for people not just wanting to join the adf but i've got you know i've got a few athletes on there i've got a, a couple of high profile business people who it's got a couple of entrepreneurs there's people there who just want to be better versions of themselves i hate that line but it's the truth they want to be better versions of themselves and and the high performing teams that you know that i was involved in and that you were involved in we've got certain structures and certain ways of learning and people need to learn to learn and that's oh, one man. of the things that I teach is like hey I'll teach you how to learn something don't just yeah. sit there and listen to a podcast come and learn something you know learn how to learn the mind is the most untapped resource on earth of course it is and the whole lot in listening to a couple of podcasts you did with with other people mate obviously you're very much down the same track as me with neuroscience and and different things like the the ability for our for us to learn and put things into practice is just so underutilized and for me, when you look at the, the – With humans, old dogs learn tricks fast. Absolutely, definitely. And this whole thing for me about – I believe we're – one of my stupid analogies. Human beings are like sharks. If you're, if you're not growing, you're dying. A shark can't stop swimming and just stay neutral. We could just make this a meme hour, if you like, where we just yeah, come up no, with memes. I'm the king of memes. I reckon I've written – I reckon I've actually written that once before um, – well, no, I, I believe that the secret to life is personal development, True, yeah, truly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's physical, spiritual, emotional. Yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever way that's got to be, you know. I mean, yep. I mean, if I've worked on one aspect of my life, I'll now go and work on another. Hmm. And to me, Bram, it's the thing I love. I've got uh, a guy I used to be in the cops with and seven or eight years ago had a conversation with him. He was 43, I was 40, and the retirement age is 60. And he works in a particular area. He hates it. And he's a pretty disengaged, unhappy individual. Him and I had a chat and I said to him then, mate, 
why don't you do something else? And he looked at me with this look of shock and he said, but I've only got 17 years till I retire. And I looked at this guy and just thought to myself, 17 years of being unhappy and being disengaged until you retire at 60 is heartbreaking. Like literally a bit of my heart died. And I looked at him and I thought, he's potentially the stereotypical person who will stay in a job. It doesn't have to be police or military. Stays in a job he hates. Yeah. And, and I don't mean this about his relationship because I think him and his, his partner get on really well. But so many men and women live our lives. We're taught to just settle. Settle for what you've got. Don't strive for anything more. You'll be disappointed. Especially the good Irish Catholic thing I grew up with is the old, you know, too much money is not a good thing. You know, nobody, when you look around, I look at the great majority of people that I know and I see, and I'd say 87% of them, and I made that stat up, but 87% are people who are living in mediocrity and settled for something in their life. Might be their relationship, their career, their health and fitness, their level of confidence or emotional awareness. That's a good stat. That's like, mate, that is a good stat. That's as good as 67% of the stats I've ever heard. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. 92% of stats are made up, but... And, mate, that, that's why I love it, mate. We, we'll wrap up because I can talk for hours. But to me, all I want to leave your guys with is I actually love a version of the be the best version of you that you, you said before. Yeah. I think you'll find that I think you'll find it's my job to wrap it up, mate, not yours. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. We'll take over. So, take over, mate. <laughs> that's, that's the alpha male competition, right? To me. Well, fine then. Let's see who doesn't wrap up. <laughs> I'll, st- I'll stay here all night. My focus in life is be the best version of you possible every day. Mm. So I want to be a better version of me than I was yesterday. And tomorrow, I want to be a better version of me than I was today. Now, that may not be not mean I'm happier. I might not be faster. I might not have more money. It might could be anything. But if I'm always focused and driven to be the best version of me possible every day, then I'm the best. Yeah, and that's good, and that, and that's be- that 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 does sit quite well with me because being the best version of yourself, be a better version of yourself than yesterday. It's sometimes not possible because you well, first of all, you're getting older. I mean, I mean, if I raced thirty year old Bram around the around the ten kilometer track, I mean, I did ten k's last night. I was just going for a canter in fifty five minutes. I mean, I'd have been you know in the in the low forties. So I'm not a better version of myself. 15, 14 years ago, but the fact of the, the fact of the matter is being a best version of yourself at every day of your life, you know, daily renewable contract. Yeah, mm. and we lose focus of how much time we've got left, mate. Like you and I have got well, who knows? 60 years don't, to live. Don't say that. But that's it. Yeah. You look and go 44, with the way med- medical technology is and the way that science is going and everything else, if you're fit and healthy and obviously you are and you look after yourself, you can live to – I fully intend to live to – I'm at 110 now. I was at 100 for a couple of years, and I've gone out to 110. I'm trying this carnivore diet at the moment, so I might I might not live that much longer. But I tell you what, <laughs> well, I just think, why would I at, at close to 50? Mm. I go, why would I not want to live another 60 years? And people, when I say that to some people, and, and your reaction is interesting too, a lot of people go, oh fuck that, no way, mate. 80 or 90, I'm done. Uh, but that's the 80 or 90 of the life you see yourself living. I see myself at 80 or 90 standing on stages in front of people talking about this stuff, still helping, still connected, still contributing, healthy and fit, still training, doing all of these, still riding motorbikes, doing all of these things because we're going to have the capability to do it. But you set that up now. God, I hope I'm living in Monaco. 
yeah. that, that this has been Absolutely. that successful. I'm living in Monaco. Anyway, won't even go there. And, but, mate, all the stuff for me is going, why can we not do that? Yeah, right. We have these self-limiting beliefs of going, oh, well, you know, once you hit 70, that then it's over. I'm like, forget about it. Like, look at Look at some of the 80 and 90-year-olds these days who didn't have the ability of the medical technology that we have. The life they live is unbelievable. Yeah. But the only person who drives that bus is you or me or whoever that individual is. Mm. And if you're in your mind going, well, I peaked at 26 and the mm. rest of my life mm. shit. Yeah, it's all self-belief. Absolutely. Yeah, fair call. All right. All right, man, we're going to wrap it up. <laughs> hey, man, thanks very much for coming on the Warrior You podcast. And I know that you and I are going to work a little closer together in the future and, and see how many people we can help, inspire, motivate, mentor, et cetera, et cetera. Good on you, brother. Thanks so much, Brim. I appreciate it. And to your guys out there, look, thank you so much for the military guys. That Thank you for your service. Thank you for what you've done for our country. I think it's something we do really poorly in this country is acknowledge the, the effort and the sacrifice that you, you guys made for our freedom. And I know it sounds very American, but I believe it. And ultimately just be on your front foot, be the best version of you you can. Yeah, well, we don't we don't know what the world would be like if they hadn't responded after September 11. So that's a whole other yeah. podcast, mate. It's a whole other podcast. Hey, thanks very much, man. I'll talk to you next time. Welcome to the Next Wave Podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change. 